Welcome to the Sorrel and Roots podcast, cultivating deep discipleship in community. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode eight, The Anatomy of Ideas. Thanks so much for taking this discipleship journey with us. Whether you're listening to the podcast or reading the episodes by yourself or with your family or friends, or as part of a greenhouse, I'm just glad you're here. If you've heard me talk about greenhouses and aren't quite sure what those are, there's an episode down the road called What is a Greenhouse that you might want to check out. You may hear some terms or phrases that aren't yet familiar because you'll be listening to the episode out of order, but you'll get the basic gist of it. Or just visit the website or drop us an email. By now, you've probably discovered that Soil and Roots is not your typical Christian podcast. It isn't a Bible study. It's not a collection of sermons. We're exploring the slow, intentional journey of discipleship from a somewhat non-traditional perspective, through the lens of the transformation of these ideas that sit on the bedrock of our hearts. Along the way, we're discovering some concerning differences between biblical assumptions about discipleship and modern Western assumptions about discipleship. In the New Testament, a disciple is someone whose heart, desires, and ideas become more and more molded to be like the heart, desires, and ideas of Jesus. As our ideas are transformed, our thoughts, our words, our actions, behaviors, relationships, and sometimes even our health, how we use time and money, change as we're spiritually formed. We are becoming more like Jesus, and in the process, becoming the best version of ourselves. But in modern Christianity today, the prevailing assumption is that discipleship, our spiritual formation, is primarily centered in the mind. We make a decision for Jesus. We mentally agree to certain doctrines and belief systems that may or may not influence our hearts. Our vision of what a disciple is has been boiled down to someone who's prayed a certain prayer and tries to live a decent life and waits to die so that we can finally be with Jesus in a version of heaven that seems to have very little to do with the third rock on which we currently live. Last episode, we laid out five key elements that are best for our spiritual formation. Time, habit, community, intimacy, and instruction. These are common to lots of different formative experiences, but many of us may not have access to groups that embody these five elements when it concerns our discipleship. This gap in our spiritual formation naturally leads to confusion about what the role of the local church is. If the church's primary mission is to make disciple people whose character is being formed more like Jesus, how does a local church do that today? How does a church lead a congregation to become disciples when we tend to make little time for spiritual formation and habits, we're not necessarily trained on how to share our stories and our hearts appropriately with others, and we generally spend far more time with co-workers than with fellow churchgoers? If we combine our typical American lifestyle with the fact that the modern church functions from a wrong idea of anthropology that were primarily formed through our minds, many local churches have become little more than educational centers with occasional volunteer opportunities, some good music, and a place to congregate with like-minded friends. These aren't really environments set up to explore the later stages of our critical journey. It's hard to engage in deep character formation in this type of environment. God bless our pastors, we don't always give them much to work with. Plus, if our desire is to become more like Jesus, that suggests we need to know him well, but we also need to know ourselves well. That means our personal history, our story, and the ideas that form our hearts. They may be critically important as we move forward. Here in Season 1, we're working on just getting our feet wet with these unconscious ideas 
We aren't used to framing Christianity and discipleship and formation and culture through this type of lens, so we're slowly getting acclimated to the soil, as it were. It takes a while to accept that the hidden unconscious ideas in our hearts may not actually align with our firmly held beliefs. That's just an uncomfortable thought. So far, we've explored an idea of the gospel, a few ideas of anthropology, what it means to be human, an idea of expectation, that our assumptions about the future deeply impact our interaction in the world today. And we've just touched on the fact that our origin story, our initial caregivers, have an outsized influence on our discipleship. How we relate to and experience God and others, ourselves, and even creation today has been deeply impacted by the ideas formed in our hearts when we were very young. Our first few years are typically the most spiritually formative. I'll keep tossing out some simple examples of ideas as we move through the season. Once we learn to identify ideas in ourselves, others, and culture, it's kind of like a whole new world opens up to us. You may remember the posters and images called stereograms or magic eye pictures that were really popular back in the 90s. If you don't know what those are, just look up stereogram on the internet. I put an example of one on the blog for this episode if you want to check one out there. At first glance, the pictures just look like random patterns that make you kind of dizzy. But if you stare at them long enough and you relax your eyes and you move your head slowly back and forth, a 3D image magically appears that you couldn't see before. I had one with the hidden image of the Statue of Liberty hanging on my wall as a kid. It takes a while to train your eyes to see the hidden image, but once you get the hang of it, you can quickly find them on any stereogram. That's sort of the way ideas work. It takes a while to learn how to discern them, but once you do, you start identifying them everywhere. As we dive into the anatomy of ideas, we need to fight the tendency to look at this as a purely academic exercise. Remember, we embrace ideas in our hearts. They're deeply embedded with our desires. If we look at ideas as just another piece of Christian education, we're missing the point. Ideas have energy. They have power. They move us. Ideas aren't so much intellectual conclusions as they are experienced realities. So here's another quick example of how ideas work. Chances are you have two categories of friends. Windshield friends and coffeehouse friends. I have a few windshield friends. I generally only hear from them when they're driving, when they have windshield time. Most likely we all call someone from time to time when we're driving, but a windshield friend only contacts you when they're in the middle of doing something else. In the car, taking a walk, cleaning the house... This type of friend is always multitasking, and in an attempt to be efficient, they fit you in whenever they have extra bandwidth while doing something else. A coffeehouse friend is very different. They invite you out somewhere where the two of you enjoy uninterrupted time together. When you sit down, you realize with some shock that their phone is nowhere to be found. They are dialed in to you. When they ask you how you are, they pay attention to your answer. They ask follow-up questions. They're genuinely interested in you and your story. My guess is you recognize these two friendship types, and if you took a few moments, you could place most of your friends in one of these two categories. And that's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with windshield friends. We all have people in our lives who are good acquaintances and just pleasant people to be around. However, if we stop and think through these two categories through the lens of the underlying ideas in your friends' hearts regarding you and your relationship, we might learn something about them and about ourselves. Given that the ideas that power us are very often formed through relationships, how do our windshield and coffeehouse friends impact us? 
Here's just one idea that's worth exploring. A coffeehouse friend is someone who pursues you. They press into you. They genuinely seek your goodness. When they're with you, they're focused with you. When they're not with you, they still seem to be thinking about you. You are constantly in their orbit, and you know they desire to know you. That just isn't the case with your windshield friends. They don't really desire to know you. They don't pursue you. They don't want to harm you, but they aren't actively seeking your goodness either. In fact, if we're honest, in some cases, them reaching out to you is actually more about them than it is about you. These two types of relationships can form different ideas in our hearts. A coffeehouse friend is forming strong ideas of identity and value in you. You are worth pursuing. You are worth being known. You are someone worth experiencing. A windshield friend may be forming a very different set of ideas. What value do you really have if you are constantly being fit into their schedule? What ideas of value are being reinforced in your heart as your heart realizes this friend isn't pursuing you and they don't really have a desire to know you? Again, most of us have both types of friends, and if we're honest, we probably play both roles in our circle of friends. We're asking deeper questions here, though. What sort of ideas are forming in our hearts as a result of these types of friendships? Are we aware of the ideas being formed? What impact might they be having on our unconscious, hidden ideas of identity and value and purpose? Okay, hopefully that quick example is helping us see the hidden pictures in the stereogram, as it were. Because these ideas are so vital in our discipleship, we're going to get a bit technical and break down these ideas into some of their key characteristics. We're going to explore four of them. Origin. Where do ideas come from? Location. Where can we find them? Formation. How are our hearts impacted by these ideas? And awareness. How do we usually become aware of ideas in our hearts? Origin, location, formation, and awareness. So let's go back to the creation picture that we introduced back in episode one. You can find it on the resources tab at soilandroots.org. The outer circle is all of creation and the cosmos. The seven mountains in the background represent the seven mountains of culture. That's family, church, business, media, government, arts and entertainment, and education. The tree is you. The trees around you are other people, and the roots of your tree represent your heart. And your roots are planted in soil. The soil are the ideas that your heart embraces. Because we live in the tension of two kingdoms, our soil has ideas of both light and dark in them. All right, let's talk about origin. Where do these ideas come from? Well, somewhat obviously, God is the origin of the ideas of the kingdom of light. All of his ideas are good. They're true. They result in life, flourishing, love, joy, peace, and so on. I introduced you to core ideas last episode. These are fundamental ideas in the hearts of every person. They are identity, anthropology, value, power, purpose, and love. Who are we? What are we? What are we worth? What authority do we have? What is our purpose? And whom do we love? When our hearts embrace ideas of light in these six critical categories, we experience freedom and joy. Our desires bend towards God and we become more like Jesus. Our relationship with God deepens, though we also learn to love others and ourselves well, and we have kingdom impact on creation and culture. God's ideas lead to life. However, there are two sets of ideas, and the kingdom of darkness has its own. But here is a critical point. The ideas of darkness are not original. They can only be distortions or corruptions or variations of ideas of light. 
We've seen so many superhero movies, sometimes we assume that evil always shows up as a villain dressed in black with bad makeup. But generally speaking, evil is not so easy to spot. Some of the most wicked people I've ever met are also the nicest. They go to church, they pray for their friends, they're generally admired and respected by lots of people. Ideas of darkness can be very subtle, and on the surface look fantastic. They often appeal to good desires in our hearts, but appeal in a way that we're caught off guard by their true intention, which is to harm and kill us. So, let's look at a prime example of a dark idea in the very first sin. In Genesis 2, the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. In Genesis 3, the serpent approaches Eve, and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay, so let's look at this conversation through the lens of two different core ideas. An idea of identity and an idea of power. What are the ideas of identity and power that God reveals to Adam and Eve about themselves? So let's talk about identity. Adam and Eve are created by God, and they are good. They are made in God's image. They are not divine, though they enjoy an in-person relationship with their creator. How about power? God gives them rule over the whole earth in Genesis 1. God grants them authority to steward all of creation on his behalf. He doesn't give them divine authority. They are human, not gods. They do not have power over death. They're not all-knowing. So what ideas of identity and power does the serpent suggest to Eve and Adam? Identity. You can be like God. In fact, you can become gods. Idea of power. You will not die. You can have power over death. Instead of presenting God as the loving creator, the serpent suggests God as a lying, power-hungry divine who is keeping Adam and Eve in the dark to protect himself. The serpent didn't argue against the existence of God. He didn't present radical new ideas. He presented subtle variations of God's ideas that suggested doubt to Eve's heart. He appealed to her good desires, but in a twisted way. Instead of trusting in God to provide those things, she trusted the darkness and ate from the tree, and so did Adam. Sin entered the world, and the kingdom of darkness was in effect born. That's the power of ideas. We're going to explore lots of ideas on soil and roots, and we're going to see just how often ideas of darkness appear similar to ideas of light, and our hearts are sometimes easily fooled. Let's talk about location. Maybe it's just hard to find ideas of light. How does God promote, reveal, and invite us to embrace his ideas? Where are they located? Well, they are quite literally everywhere. Here are just five locations. Number one, God wrote us a personal book. He shares about himself and his idea in his book, and it's available to any of us at any time in our high-tech age. We call this God's special revelation. Number two, he wrote us a second book, the book of creation. He puts his ideas in every cell and every star. His creation is littered with his ideas. We call this his general revelation. 
Now, modern Protestants tend to politely freak out when we talk about God's second book, but we really shouldn't. Jonathan Edwards is credited to have said, Nature is God's greatest evangelist. It's a shame we don't usually teach our kids how to spot God's ideas in the created order. We learn about his creativity, his design, his love, his wonder, his purposes by studying his good world. We generally steer clear of talking about nature because we fear that any mention of the environment will automatically conjure up nature worship or environmental extremism, but that's just too bad, especially considering you can't read your Bible without some base knowledge of God's second book. The Bible relies very heavily on nature metaphors and images, including the design of our own bodies. All right, the third place that God places his ideas is in others. God shares his ideas with us through people in our lives. He may share his ideas through our spouses, our kids, our family, close friends, maybe mentors or pastors or other wise leaders. God weaves his ideas into our lives through other people. The fourth place is ourselves. We come hardwired with various ideas of light already in our hearts. And fifth, he shares ideas with us himself. As if writing us a book and writing his ideas into every speck of the universe, sharing himself through other people and ourselves is not enough. If we follow him, he takes up residence in our hearts in the person of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us. We should be getting the sense of just how passionately and purposefully God pursues us. His good, truthful, life-giving ideas are literally everywhere, both outside and inside us. All right, so let's talk about formation. We've covered origin. We've covered location. How are these ideas formed in our hearts? What makes our hearts bend towards darkness or light? There are three types of idea formation. Initial, abrupt, and progressive. So initial, we come hardwired with some ideas of light. We know we are eternal. That's an idea of anthropology. According to Romans, we have some sense of morality, even if we don't acknowledge or trust in God. But because we're born in sin, we also come wired with some ideas of darkness. If you don't believe me, you haven't raised a toddler. We don't train our kids to lie and steal, but they figure out how to lie and steal anyhow. Abrupt formation. The ideas in our hearts sometimes change very quickly and dramatically because of two primary causes, divine intervention and trauma. Divine intervention results in our hearts embracing ideas of light. Trauma usually results in our hearts bending towards ideas of darkness, at least right after the trauma. Salvation is a really good example of a divine intervention that results in radical, abrupt changes of our core ideas. Salvation doesn't always occur quickly, of course, but many times it does. Our core ideas of identity, anthropology, value, power, purpose, love, all change from darkness to light in various ways and to varying degrees. On the other hand, trauma can quickly distort and corrupt our hearts and turn them towards darkness. And tragically, our culture continues to see an acceleration of abuse, exploitation, and betrayal, which results in all manner of harm, self-abuse, substance abuse, relationship destruction, suicide, other violence. These are evidence of profound negative changes in our core ideas. Child abuse, sexual abuse, emotional and physical abandonment, adultery, divorce, and related actions normally result in abrupt changes to those ideas down in our soil. A young girl who's been molested may experience very harmful, sudden changes to at least her ideas of identity, of power, value, 
Her concept of self will become distorted. Her heart will be confused about her powerlessness and she'll often struggle with how valuable she is and to whom. A son whose father abandons the family may experience terrible changes to his ideas of identity, value, and love. When a father leaves his family, he corrupts the very idea of what love is, sacrificially giving of ourselves to someone else. The loss of a loved one can cause abrupt changes to our ideas, as can other losses, such as a failed friendship or job loss, infertility or illness. In the case of being victimized, the closer the relationship to the one causing the harm, the deeper and more insidious the changes of the ideas in our soil. A single instance of harm can certainly cause dramatic changes to our hearts, but prolonged harm from a close loved one can cut even deeper. If we've ever experienced either big T or little t trauma, we understand why time is such an essential component of discipleship. Some ideas of darkness are so deeply embedded in our hearts because of trauma, it takes long periods of time. The introduction of various life-giving habits, intimacy with healthy people in a committed community to slowly turn ideas of darkness into ideas of light. For some, it's a lifelong process, and that's okay. Anyone who has suffered from various forms of PTSD knows it takes time, healthy habits, appropriate intimacy, and accepting community, and repeated instruction to retrain our hearts and bring them back to ideas of life and light. We may be harmed through abrupt formation, but we don't normally heal that way. We heal through progressive formation and the constant relational reinforcement of ideas of light. So we've talked about initial formation and abrupt formation. Let's talk about progressive formation. That refers to the steady influence of ideas over long periods of time. In a positive sense, this process happens through creation and culture, others, God, and his word. But most Christians who are aware of progressive formation are aware of it in culture, and we tend to only see dark ideas taking shape there. For example, we can just look back at the cultural mountains of media, education, the arts, and entertainment to see how various ideas of darkness have slowly, consistently, relentlessly made their way into our homes and hearts over the past several decades. They have seeped into our soils. The kingdom of darkness understands the power of ideas very well and uses culture to progressively promote its ideas with great success. Why? Well, because it's efficient. Using cultural institutions to saturate hearts with ideas of darkness is basically crop dusting. The enemy doesn't need to go heart by heart. The enemy can impact millions of hearts at one time by efficiently spreading its ideas through the seven mountains of culture. Ideas of darkness can also progressively invade our hearts through unhealthy relationships. Women who have escaped from abusive, long-term relationships share how their core ideas of identity, value, power, purpose, and love were corrupted and damaged by their abuser, and how it may take years of healthy, life-giving engagement to recover core ideas of light. Now, ideas of light progressively influence our hearts as well. It's beautiful to watch. If you've ever had the privilege of walking with a friend or family member through a crisis or relationship that harmed their hearts, chances are you've watched God gently invite the victim back to ideas of light through your relationship, other caring friends, scripture, life circumstances, prayer, and just your presence. Just the fact that you sacrifice to be with the victim consistently, faithfully. It's a process. It's progressive. As Americans, we're used to fulfilling our desires immediately and getting what we want when we want, but our hearts just don't work like that. 
And if we try to shortcut progressive formation and recovery, we actually may end up doing more harm than good. So lastly, how do we become aware of the hidden ideas in our hearts? Well, unfortunately, we typically don't dive into our hearts to discover our hidden ideas until we're in some sort of crisis. Because most of us don't think about the ideas and desires that govern us. We tend to go through life above the surface. We develop all sorts of intricate coping mechanisms to avoid discerning our hearts. But when crisis hits and our coping mechanisms begin to fail, we either pile on more coping mechanisms or we surrender and dive into our hearts to find out why what we're doing just isn't working. Now the obvious problem is that if we wait to uncover our hearts until a crisis arrives, we'll be ill-prepared for the crisis when it comes. And the crisis always comes. I'm no stranger to living with hidden ideas in my heart, so I'll give you one story, one example to think about. I've led various organizations over the years, and several years ago I was running one that was facing some very painful challenges. On top of that, I was dealing with a situation involving a close friend and had to make what appeared to be some no-win decisions. I couldn't find a way to resolve a difficult set of circumstances without someone just getting hurt, and my friendship was probably going to fall apart. This had been going on for several weeks, and I was starting to fray. I had been shouldering these challenges well on the outside, but on the inside I was falling apart. Now in our house, our water bill is perpetually high, and I'm the reason, because I think in the shower. It's where I solve problems, explore new ideas, and where I hold my own mental debates. It's quiet, and there are no distractions. Anyhow, I was in the shower trying to figure out what to do with all these seemingly impossible circumstances, when the weight of my role, the decisions I had to make, the emotional strain, the hurt that was sure to come, fell on me very suddenly. I'm typically a very composed person, but in that unexpected moment, I went from having it all together to having it all fall apart. I collapsed onto the floor and just began to weep uncontrollably. If you've ever cried so hard you can't breathe, you know that your lungs make some very strange, almost otherworldly sounds. Understandably, my wife Jessica woke up when she heard me gasping and she rushed into the bathroom, saw me on the floor of the shower, and without a second thought, opened the door, sat down, and grabbed me as hard as she could. And she just held me. She didn't say a word. She just sat there, fully clothed in her pajamas, soaking wet, holding me. Now, I've attended a few thousand worship services in my life. I've been in prayer service after prayer service. Because of my church music background, I've sat in almost every type of denominational setting. But in all my years, I've never had a more worshipful experience than that morning. I've never experienced a more powerful expression of Jesus' love for me than when my wife rushed in to meet me in my grief and anxiety, taking me as I was, getting herself and her clothes soaking wet, and just holding me, just being with me. Well, that crisis was actually a milestone in the transformation of an idea of darkness in my heart. If you had asked me several years ago if God loves me, I would have said, absolutely yes. I've known that since I was a kid. If you had asked me if I had to do anything to earn God's favor, I would have said no. I knew that God loved me because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. If you had told me that I was actually embracing an idea of love that was more dark than light, I would have vigorously denied it. But I was. Even though I intellectually knew God loved me, and there was nothing I could do to earn his favor, even though I had been taught that dozens and dozens of times, my heart was holding on to a different idea. For various reasons, my heart embraced the idea that God loved me if I performed for him, that his acceptance of me was based on what I did for him, 
My heart and my head were in two very different places, and I didn't even know it. My idea of love was more dark than light. That morning when my wife rushed in to be with me in the midst of my anxiety was a pivotal moment in my heart giving up this idea of darkness about love. Jessica didn't care if I performed for her. Her love for me wasn't dependent on my good decisions or my poor ones. It didn't matter if I succeeded or failed. It didn't matter if I had lots of friends or had none. She loves me because she loves me. I still struggle with this dark idea of love at times, and I probably will for the rest of my life. But it's more light than dark now, and there's some wonderful freedom in that. Ideas of light originate in God, and they are everywhere. He never stops inviting us to embrace them, and he writes his ideas into every speck of creation. So I hope that even this week, you take a few moments to look around you and see how God is inviting you to embrace ideas of light about your identity, your value, your purpose. And I hope you're patient with yourself and others around you, understanding that progressive spiritual formation, this transformation of dark ideas to light, really does take time. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like more information on the work of Soil and Roots, you can check out the website at soilandroots.org and feel free to email us at fish at soilandroots.org. And we'll see you next time.